How's everybody tonight? I am fair to Midland. <laughs> I think I'm good. Hey, uh, so we got two more weeks in Lamentations. We're going to do chapter four tonight, chapter five next week. Then we'll be jumping into Ezekiel, which should be interesting uh, study for us as we go on. Remember when we come to Lamentations, Lamentations is not... Um, it's not the title, it's the English title of this book. The real title is Echa. And Echa is like something you do when you're super stressed out. Uh, it's like the word how, only it's not always translated. Sometimes it's translated just as a sigh. Um, so it's definitely a a section of scripture that deals with the laments, the laments that uh, Jeremiah gave as he watched uh, the, the end result of 40 years of his ministry and 40 years of people's rebellion against God's revelation that ultimately led to uh, their exile and <clears throat> their destruction. And so as Jeremiah, uh, tradition tells us Jeremiah is standing on a hill, uh, later to be called Golgotha, the place of the skull, that he is in a place there called Jeremiah's Grotto, a little cave indent in the, in the hillside, and he is watching with sorrow the destruction of, of the nation of Israel, the end of their nation. So he writes out five laments, five poems, each uh, with the exception of number five, is an acrostic, which means uh, each verse begins the letter of the, of the next uh, uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's why there's 22 verses in every chapter except for chapter three. Chapter three, there's 66. So there's a reason for that. Poetically, he is pointing emphasis to chapter three. Chapter three is the poem through which we search for answers. One of the things that we want to understand is for the people in the city and all the destruction that's going on, they, they don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand what's happening. They don't even understand, you know, the wise. All the prophets they were listening to told them everything was going to be okay. So they're reaching out, looking up, and Jeremiah is writing about it. Poem number one, chapter one is written from the point of view of the nation as a woman who is left after the whole city's been destroyed and there's no one there to comfort her. She's on her own and she's crying out. It's an expression of intense grief and sorrow and question, right? Why? How is this happening? Poem number two is focused on the fall of Jerusalem as an outpouring of God's wrath. Poem number three we talked about is the search for answers. This is the one that's going to draw our attention to the faithfulness of God and the value of his presence with us, even if you don't have answers. Great is his faithfulness. It's through his mercies we are not consumed. So the poems all together pointing to poem number three. Poem number four tonight we're going to look at, The Siege of Jerusalem. And it's a poem of contrast. It's like uh, looking back to the good old days. Once we were like this, now we're, we're like that. Once we have hope, now we have despair. This is going to be the theme of poem number four. And then poem number five is the one that abandons the acrostic um, of the poetry. It also abandons the meter of the poetry, and it's all about being overcome with the chaos and grief and ends uh, in a paradox, uh, looking and hoping for God's forgiveness and wondering if that forgiveness is coming. So as we look tonight, tonight we're going to begin with the idea of talking about the seriousness of our sin. And as we're working our way through these poems and trying to grapple with what's going on historically and what's happening overall and being uh, pointed to in the, in the poetry, I got uh, four things I, I just want, made little notes for myself that I thought I'd share with you guys. 
um, lessons learned, if you will, from Lamentations. The first one is, uh, I need to grasp God's holiness. We have to understand that there is no escape from God's justice. There's not a special decree from God that says, you know what, it's okay. You don't need to be holy as I am holy. And that understanding that aspect of the holiness of God and the call to the holiness of God. The second thing is to recognize the peril that comes when we ignore God's revelation. So we can all argue about the things we doubt, the things that are difficult, but we should probably just worry about taking care of the things we understand perfectly well. Right? And there is peril for God's people if they ignore God's revelation. Then the, the third thing, uh, wickedness, evil, wrongdoing will be judged because God is just. We have this idea sometimes in our mind that it is higher, a, 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 to just automatically forgive everything. That's a, that's a human idea. God is just. There's a reason Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't because God was just going to sweep under the carpet all the failures of men. It was to make a way. But God will judge the wicked. Ezekiel, we'll see it when we look at the battle between Gog and Magog. We'll see the battle of Gog and Magog again, Revelation 20. We see the battle of Armageddon, Revelation 19. We see the little Armageddon in Isaiah. We, we go through all the prophets, and one of the things that they all have in common is there will be a day when God judges the wicked. Yes? There will be a day. And Lamentations is written from the point of view of someone who believed the revelation of God, weeping over the people who did not. And their sorrow and suffering. The last thing is, our success comes from our surrender. Learning to surrender to the sovereign God is so vital for us. It is the pathway through the valley of the shadow of death. It is... Our, way, our pathway through difficult times, no matter what's going on, simply surrendering to the Lord, right? Like all those people that Jeremiah told, you don't have to, you don't have to watch your children starve to death. Surrender and live. That's what God told them. Surrender and live. Our success will come through that surrender. So let's talk a little bit about the seriousness of sin as we... Pick up the contrast, the poem of contrast uh, between the past and the present in Lamentations chapter 4. Begins in verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as clay pots. The work of a potter's hands. So he's giving this contrast, right, between how things used to look. You looked at the temple, and, and it was covered in gold. The temple's gone now. It's destroyed. In fact, the poem says uh, you can see the, the chief stones of the temple scattered among the streets everywhere. The stones scattered throughout the streets. Holy stones lie at the head of every street. The gold is dim. Scripture tells us that Nebuzaradan, he took it all. Every piece of gold. He packed it up and packed it away. And now what was so valuable to them, right? They, they look at their government, their chief priests, their chief princes, and they say that which we, we looked at as so valuable and such, so, so, such incredible beauty, and they're just clay pots. 
are just normal. Once we thought this was so great, now we look at a pile of rubble. He goes on, verse 3, Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people have become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. Anytime we talk about jackals and ostriches, my hackles always come up. Because I understand that the word, the Hebrew word for jackals and ostriches has a lot of people argue over it. There's a reason why you'll look in King James and sometimes you'll see an area where ESV will say jackal and King James will say dragon. And you say, well, a jackal and a dragon aren't exactly the same thing. You're right, they're not. But when you find that in translations, you know what you do with it? You say, I bet that's a word they're not quite sure how to interpret. They're like, okay, well, we're not going to go with dragon. We're going to go with jackal. We're going we're gonna to talk about ostriches. Uh, just so you know, you don't see either of those things in Jerusalem. So the idea that Jeremiah is throwing around the concept of ostriches is a little weird to me. It wouldn't be so weird if you went to Israel and you walked around and you saw them. What you have is a Hebrew word that is often a word that is in between like the, the, the concept of a real animal and the concept of a mythological animal usually used to describe something wicked or dark. Oh, like uh, if we were to say werewolf, right? You know, there's no such thing. Uh, please don't send me emails on how there are real werewolves. Um, but these are creatures that describe something, right? If I said a werewolf, you would kind of get an idea of what I was talking about, you know, what, what point I'm trying to get across. And the same thing is happening here. There's a, there's a point. There's, he's saying even these wicked, weird animals that sometimes are linked with uh, 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 um, the demonic realm, even these feed their young. Even they take care of this. It's a poem of contrast. Even they take care of their young, but the daughter of my people, he's going to tell us in a minute, they're not going to feed their young, they're going to eat them. The idea is even, these, even this weird view, this weird creature is not doing that. But the daughter of my people they are doing it. They have become like wild animals. Verse 4, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. What's the point? But jackal will feed its young. So the child has nothing. The, the, the infant, its, its tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. So we would say, you know, if we were to back up and look at the story from the outside, and <coughs> I was to pull the moms in here, I bet the list of moms that say, if there was absolutely no food, I would eat my child would be small. Right? Nobody says, usually what we say is, I'll give them the food. Whatever we can scrap up, I'll give to the kids. But that's not what happened. What happened was they ate their children. And one of the things we discover as a result is that man is never quite as honorable as he sounds. And none of us have been there, right? You have never been without food to the point where you have literally so much despair that you're, in your brain, it's better to do that than feed your kids. But that was their reality, and this is the contrast the poet is trying to say. Once upon a time, you would have thought, you would have never compared yourself to a jackal, but I'm telling you, a jackal is more honorable than you. Because a jackal will feed its young. So he says, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the street. And those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. So 
those who once upon a time said, I have no, there's no reason ever to, to sorrow or mourn, right? The idea of being in an ash heap is of mourning, repentance, incredible sorrow, crying out in the, in the, in the garbage pail. And so here, he's saying, you, once upon a time, you would have said, oh, life's good. I got everything I want. Everything I ever need, I, I have it right here. Those who once feasted on delicacies, they die in the street. And those who were brought up in purple, wearing fancy clothes, they're in sackcloth and ashes, in heaps. Verse 6, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. So he's going to say this is a harsher judgment from God because Sodom and Gomorrah were, was over pretty fast, right? Pretty fast. Fire from heaven. That's quick. Slowly starving to death for two years. That's slow, right? He says the punishment, the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater who was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. There was no wearied hands, uh, uh, worried hands being wrung, trying to figure out how to solve the situation. Now, again, I want you to understand that situation is the result of following poor leadership, of following false prophets. Because in their midst, there was a godly man saying, you don't have to be hungry. Nebuzaradan will feed you right now. Leave your house, walk away from all this stuff, surrender, and live. But the revelation of God was rejected, and the people find themselves in very severe consequences. Look at verse 7. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more, more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. So he's describing the beauty of the nobles, the noble families, how honorable they looked. You know, they, had, they wore the best clothes. They, they had the best people to take care of them. You know, they had the best food. So they always looked better than the guy who... There's no different than today. Yeah, I can look at people my age look a whole lot better because they have a whole lot more available. These people have all the, the things you could ever want at their fingertips. They looked amazing. They were incredible. But now, verse 8, now their face is blacker than soot. And we can't tell the difference. Right? They are not recognized in the street. So you could be sitting in an ash heap as a person who was poor their whole life and crying in an ash heap because you're so hungry and right next to you would be the prince. No different. No different because it had affected everyone so much. The, 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 the poem, by contrast and comparison, now that was what that had everything, have nothing. They are not recognized in their streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Just think for a moment about the pictures that we see in the concentration camps. You know, if you've had a chance to go through Yad Vashem or, or see a Holocaust memorial, and you've seen the pictures. Can you tell in those pictures which of those people lived in wealth and which of them didn't? No. Why? They all look the same. Right? They're all starving. They're all hungry. They're all dirty. They're all poor. They're all in the same place. So this is what what Jeremiah is laying out. Those who were so elevated have been brought low. In verse 9, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruit of the field. Verse 10, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. So that incredible famine and suffering that took place is something we can't even fathom. None of us in this room have been that hungry before. Ever. And so, but they, these guys were. 
They got to that point. They got to that place. Why? Why were they in that place? The Lord said, here's what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come and conquer you. Submit. Accept their rulership. The exile will be 70 years. There only ever had to be one battle for Jerusalem, but there were three. There only ever had to be one fight, but this one never had to happen. This was number three. Never had to happen. But where does the rebelliousness of man end? Read the paper. Watch the news. Where will our rebelliousness end? Is there a limit? You think that anybody's going to stop anytime soon? Oh, no. We're just picking up speed. We're just picking up speed. And that's what was going on within, in Jerusalem. That was, that was where these had been brought down to. So the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled the fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. So you can rebel and rebel and rebel and rebel and rebel, and you can say, God will forgive me, God will forgive me, God will forgive me, until he says no. The soul that sins has to pay the debt. All men owe a debt to the God of the universe. Jesus told the parable, didn't he? There were two men that owed a great sum of money. You remember the story? Jesus was asking a Pharisee. Both were forgiven their debt. Which one will love more? He said the one who was forgiven more. In our experience with Christ, our walk with the Lord, if we don't understand what we've been forgiven of, you will never be motivated by love for Christ. You'll look at it like just a common thing. What's the big deal? A lot of people think of it that way. But if you understand for, for what you have been forgiven, the ability to respond with love is much easier. When we don't understand it, when we say, I don't get it, what's the big deal? I'm not that bad. I've never really done anything wrong. You know, basically I'm a good person, then you will despise the gift that God is offering. You will rebel against the call of submission. You will turn your back to him and not your face. And there will be a day when God will judge the wicked. It's not about being motivated by fear. It's just about understanding the truth. God is holy. God is also good. And there's nothing not good about God judging the wicked. Nothing said God had to make a way for anybody, but he did. He made a way for them, and they didn't all suffer. All those who accepted that which God had laid out for them, they dwelt in the land in relative peace for 70 years they raised up their kids and they went back to the land but the rebels that's what these poems are about i reb I, I rebelled so hard that i took myself to a place of such incredible despair that i ate my child that's crazy But that is what it is. That's, that's the end result of despising, despising what the Lord has for you. And at verse 11, we kind of end the very, very first subsection of the poem, which is focused on the cost of that. What is the, what is the comparison? We had gold, now we're pottery. We're, we're acting worse than wild animals. That which was super wealthy, we can't tell the difference of because we're all... In the same despair. And what is it? Verse 11. This is the wrath of God. 
Is there another book that talks about the wrath of God in the Bible? Yeah. Anybody ever heard of that book? The Revelation of Jesus Christ? Yeah. That's the wrath. That's the wrath of God. That's the wrath of God. And this is what Jeremiah is talking about. He's looking at the wrath of God, the outpouring of God's judgment on the wicked. It's not a day of celebration for Jeremiah. It's a day of tears. It's weeping. As he looks over people who don't have to be where they are. But are nonetheless. Now he's going to call out specifically, beginning in verse 12, the priests and the prophet who were supposed to be the ones the people could look to for leadership, right? Verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could ever enter the gates of Jerusalem. Oh, that'll never happen. You ever heard that before? Oh, you crazy people have been talking about Jesus coming back forever. That ain't never going to happen. The United States of America could, could, could never collapse. We're the strongest nation on earth. You sure? The priests and the prophets were telling the people, you don't have anything to worry about. We're going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Meanwhile, Jeremiah is coming through saying, you're not going to be okay. This is God's judgment. Our destruction is at hand. Surrender. Surrender and live. Fight and die. That's what he told them. Surrender and live. Fight and die. But the kings did not believe him. The leaders did not believe him. They did not respond to the message of Jeremiah. What did they do to him? They threw him in a pit. What did they do to him? They, they shut him off of Facebook. What did they do to him? They silenced his voice among the people. Why do you think they put him in a pit? Why do you think they threw him in jail? Because they said, nobody needs to hear this message. There's a lot of that rhetoric floating right now. A lot of rhetoric about, about those ideas. So he's saying, look, they said, these kings, these others, the leaders, um, they said no one could ever enter in. Verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So you had the righteous coming and trying to give word to those who would not hear it. And they were imprisoned or they were killed by whom? The other religious. They were, they were silenced. Just like Paul would write later that the day will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But they will heap up for themselves teachers that will scratch their itching ears. Tell them the things they want to hear. There's no shortage of people who want that, who want fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. So they, they take the message or they say, oh, I don't really focus on that message. There's such a wave right now of what they're calling progressive Christianity, which doesn't look anything like biblical Christianity, but it's a message everybody likes to hear. None of that stuff the Bible says, and it really doesn't say any of that. I heard, I heard a lady today, the, what do they call her, the TikTok theologian? She, is, uh, she has a Master's of Divinity, and uh, she was talking about how the whole idea that the Bible speaks against homosexuality is something that was uh, put into the Word in the 1940s, to teach people to be homophobic. And people believe it. They're like, oh yeah, that, that must have happened. Well, she said so. She's got all them letters after her name. She would never, she would never lie, because that always works, right? All those people with lots of letters behind their name, they never lied to us. 
she said she she was a, a little a little deceptive. She said the word homosexuality is not in the Bible. You're right. The word homosexuality is not in the Bible. The Bible very clearly says man shall not lie with man like a woman. They didn't have the word homosexual then. We developed it when we looked at it and said man lying with man. That is homo, same, sexual, same sex. We created a word, true. But the Bible still talks about it. Yeah? But there are people who will just say, yeah, that's right. It's all good. It's okay. God doesn't care if you do this or you do that. God doesn't care if you lie or cheat or do any of the things that you do. God doesn't care about any of those things. The Bible never really calls us to holiness or anything else. Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Everything will be okay. And that will be the message from the false prophets and the false church all the way until the time Christ puts his feet on the earth. There's a reason why the book of Revelation states after all of that that God will wipe away every tear. Because if you think you and I will watch that happen and say, yeah, get them, God. You and I will be just like Jeremiah, sitting on the hillside, weeping over people throwing away their lives for nothing, for rebellion's sake. Just because they are frustrated uh, and angry at the Lord. This is the sin of the prophets, the iniquity of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind throughout the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. The description that he gives reminds me of the description in Genesis uh, 18, 18 and 19 um, that, that uh, no... Yeah, Genesis 18 and 19, where it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember in Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels come to see Lot, and the men of the city come, and they want to be with the angels. They say, give us, you know, send those guys out here. And, uh, and so Lot says, don't do this evil, and the Bible says that the, the Lord makes them blind, and they wear themselves out looking for the door. What is he saying about these priests who have the false message? Their hands are covered with blood and they're totally blind. They're just aimlessly wandering around, receiving in the moment whatever things they're ever going to have for life because that's the only praise that they'll ever get. But they are so defiled with the blood of the righteous, of silencing the voices that are in opposition. The incredible danger of being caught in an echo chamber where the only sound you hear is the sound of those who have been approved. And your ideas are never challenged. Your theology is never challenged. And you're stuck in this echo chamber, silencing the voices, wandering like the blind in the streets, so defiled with blood that no one can touch their garments. So, the description is there's so much blood running off of them, no one will touch them. Now they get described as lepers. They say, away, unclean. People cried, away, away, do not touch. And they have become like fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. So they they wander around silencing the voice of the righteous. They're clothed in blood, and in the end, they are considered as lepers. Unclean, unclean, unclean. They were the voice to be the voice for the Lord among the people. The priests, their role of the priests was to stay in the cities uh, of the of the 12 tribes of Israel and teach them the things. That the Lord had commanded. But they dropped that job. They let that go. Instead, they silenced the voice of the truth to express the voice of the lie. And in the end, like lepers, they are scattered. The Lord himself says, it says, he, he has scattered them. <clears throat> 
He will regard them no more. No honor is shown them and no favor to the elders. Verse 17 talks about their hopes. Verse 17, he says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save. So they're looking. Now, we know from Jeremiah, right, that they were constantly sending out to Egypt or other nations, and the Lord would warn them, don't go to them for help. Come to me. But they say, well, no, no, I don't know. You know, we can, we can pray and we can ask God, but maybe he's not going to do it. It would be better for us if we just go to Egypt. But what was the end result? Egypt didn't show up with bread. Nobody came with food. They end up without hope. He says, we looked. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. There is one name under heaven by which men must be saved. That is the name Jesus Christ. That is the name by which we must be saved. Verse 18, they dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. <clears throat> our days were numbered. Our end had come. So first we see they hope in other nations and those nations don't show up. And then what we see is the abandoning of hope. So we watched and we watched, but they never showed up. So we realize our end is drawing near. Our days are numbered. Our end has come. It's over. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing, there's nothing that can be done for us. Verse 19, he says, Our pursuers were swifter than eagles, in the heavens, they chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. So they hoped in other nations. They didn't come. They abandoned their hope. They realized the end has come, and now they seek to hide. Revelation chapter 6. And the great and the mighty of the earth hid in the caves under the rocks and cried out, Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So they, they, they look to escape. They have their hope in other nations, abandon hope, and then they seek to hide. Hide us. Where can we hide? Verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. The breath of our nostrils. We who are the Lord's elect. Right? That's Israel. Our breath is caught in their pits. Of whom it was said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. But now the shadow of the Lord is gone and the shadow of destruction has come and so they cry out will someone hide us from the wrath of the lamb the poem of the lament and the expression of grief from jeremiah is not a celebration of those who rejected his word or those who locked him up those who threw him in pits those who abused him he's not saying finally they get what they deserve He's weeping for the people of the nation, saying, we're the Lord's anointed. We were God's elect. And here we are at the end of our nation. They're, gonna, they're never going to be who they were again. They'll never be who they were ever until the day Jesus Christ's feet touch the ground. Then Israel will have a king. Then they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will turn their eyes as a nation to her Messiah. But that's not today. 
when Jesus comes, there will be a day when Paul would, would uh, shout with excited voice at the beauty of the day when that which was cut off from the olive tree is grafted back in. So Paul could exclaim, and all of Israel will be saved. That's not a pass. It's not a pass. That doesn't mean somehow if you're born a Jew, you get a pass. No pass. But those who look, those who turn, those who cry out, that is Israel. Those who reject, those who turn away, those who turn the back and walk away, that's not Israel. That's the difference between Jacob and Esau, no? The difference between Jacob and Esau? Esau rejected God. Esau wanted the good things, but he didn't want the Lord. He didn't, that never mattered to Esau at all. He wanted a bowl of beans. He valued that bowl as a greater treasure than the God of the universe. Jacob, he was not better. He didn't do less bad things, did he? Oh, his, his name basically means liar, deceiver, heel catcher. That, that can't be good, right? But he becomes the people, the symbol for the people of God. Israel, those governed by God. Those who want the Lord. Not because they're perfect or better or they got it all put together. Simply because they understand what it is to surrender. Okay, Lord. Your way. Your way. Not mine. So in verse 21, we see the reversal of doom. So we see all this destruction, all this sorrow being described, right? Jeremiah in five poems is all talking about the same thing. Every poem talking about the destruction of his people. But the end of chapter 4, he talks about the reversal of doom. He talks about now Edom. Funny, we were just talking about Esau. He's going to talk about Edom because... Edom's going to rejoice. Edom's having a party. Israel got destroyed. Esau is celebrating Jacob being brought down. I finally got what was coming. So the Lord speaks through Jeremiah to Edom and says in verse 21, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also this cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sin. So the Lord is saying to those other nations who are looking, and we're talking, we're not talking about individuals here, we're talking about nations, God's elect, the nation of Israel being brought low, being uh, humiliated before the nations, brought down to this low state. But the Lord says, this is the end of your chastisement, the 70 years is going to end, you're going to come back into the land. Yeah? When's the last time you visited Edom? You still go to Jerusalem. You can still see it. When you, when you try to see Edom, it's more like desert and less like rubble. <laughs> so when we, when we look at what the Lord is saying, he's warning Edom, you're rejoicing over their destruction because you think... They're worse than you. You think, I'd never do that. And the Lord says, don't worry. This cup that they have drank, you will drink too. The Bible tells us that all the nations will be judged. Every nation. Right? Right? Every nation is going to 
stand before and give account to the God of the universe. And God says, I will reveal your sin. I will uncover your sins. I will show you. In Psalm 137, verse 7, the psalmist writes, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. See, the people of Israel heard their cousins over on the other hill celebrating while they were destroyed. They sit around and have a picnic while the mothers in Jerusalem were eating their children. And the Lord... The psalmist says, Lord, remember them. Remember how they celebrated over our judgment. Obadiah writes this. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. This is a prophet speaking to the Edomites. And you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, and the cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth. In the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. All those things are things Edom did to Judah. Somebody escaped, they're running, the Edomites find them. They just pick them up and drag them back, put them in chains and turn them over. The Lord says, hey, there will be the day of the Lord for all the nations. As you have done, listen, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap eternal life. Scripture talks about this law of sowing and reaping. And so the word goes to Edom. Obadiah, verse 3 and 4. In the warning from Obadiah to him, he says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar learned the same lesson that one day all the earth will learn. And that is, it is the Lord who raises up kings and brings down kingdoms. There is a limit to him withholding justice and judgment. There is a point in which the wicked will be judged. You read the valley of uh, the story of uh, the Battle of Armageddon, right? How many people walk off that field? It's never good when the beginning of the battle, the Lord says, call all the birds to come eat the flesh of all the great men. It's not a good way to start, right? Gog and Magog gathered for battle. The battle of the Lord's army and the battle of rebellious men. God wins that one all the time. This is why the Lord says that he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's one of the benefits, I think, that, that I experience by knowing who I am. I look in the mirror and I know who I am. I know what I've done in my life. 
I know the lives I've taken, the lies I ruined, the lies I told, the things I did. I know, I know it all. I know for what Christ died for me. I know of what I have been forgiven. And I will not be proud. I'll bow down. Humble myself before the Lord and allow him to raise me up. We need to be a nation in prayer that our leaders, our priests, prophets, they're giving us the message we need to hear in accordance with God's word. Not the one we want to hear that isn't in accordance with God's word. So that we understand what the Lord is telling his people. Yeah? This is the right kind of time to know what we're supposed to do. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We can study your word. Thank you for the book of Lamentations. Working our way through. We're excited for one more week. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes. Help us to receive understanding, comprehension of the things that Jeremiah is describing to us. Help us to wrap our mind around the message you want us to take from it. God, may we be men and women surrendered to you, surrendered to to what you are doing, acknowledging, God, that you are God and and we are not, that you are able, but that, Lord, you you don't despise me. You, You don't say that's it. All you're good for is the pit of hell. You said you need a way. You need the truth. You need a life. Let me send my son. Scripture says that God has already given us the greatest treasure of all of heaven. How will he not also with him freely give us all good things? He has made provision. He has made a way so that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So give us ears to hear the truth of your word, God, and make right application in our life. May we stand in these perilous times. May we be the men and women you are calling us to be faithful ones until we see your face and we will give you all the praise for it 